Uh, and now I have the, the pleasure of welcoming Wyatt Stafford. Uh, Wyatt's uh, a member at Bethany, a member of the Searchers Sunday School class. Um, I didn't look up whatever the rest of his long pedigree is, but if you would join in me in welcoming Wyatt as he speaks to us today. I wore my hat today uh, so that it would look good for this. For those of you who are who were told that the actor Tom Hanks would be speaking tonight. I have some bad news. He's not coming. So if you need a few minutes to get your stuff, I understand. <laughs> My name is Robert Wyatt Stafford. I've gone by the name Wyatt since I was about two years old. You know, there are a lot of people in restaurants and convenience stores who don't know who Wyatt Earp is. And so when I say, my name's Wyatt, like Wyatt Earp, they're like, perhaps we should call 911. <laughs> I was born in uh, the Naval Hospital near Corpus Christi, uh, approximately where the town of Flower Bluff is. And my birth certificate says Nueces County. It doesn't say Corpus or anything like that. So my whole life, whenever they would say, well, what city were you born in? Hmm was not able to answer. I would put Nueces County, but that wouldn't always work. But my family was from the Panhandle of Texas and um, up near Amarillo, Dumas, Pampa, that area. And uh, their tradition was working in the oil field. We were blue collar oil field. And um, that's where we returned after my father left the Navy back to the Panhandle. And I remember once, maybe twice, I don't know, that I attended a Methodist church. And um, my grandmother, I don't know, she, she had attended the Methodist church when she was younger. But uh, I, it, like I said, two times in uh, many years, my uh, mother and father divorced when I was about six. And... Uh, Regrettably, my mom was a lifelong drug addict, and I really didn't see her much after that. Uh, my dad left me with his parents, and that's how I came to go to the Methodist church just a couple of times uh, from my grandmother's influence. My father remarried and moved to Dumas, Texas. Dumas is 40 miles north of Amarillo, or as we in the Panhandle say, a suburb. You may know Dumas because after you've been driving north for 10 hours, you finally turn west and head for Dalhart, New Mexico. That's the way to Colorado. Or you might have got a ticket there, I don't know. So in Dumas, my dad uh, had joined the Presbyterian Church, and so like a lot of kids, I just defaulted to the dad's church. And um, we had a minister who had been in that church for a very long time, it was not a huge church, but about every other person was a lawyer. And modally, the Presbyterians are introverted. And so their nickname is the Frozen Chosen. I have nothing against them. I have a lot of friends who are Presbyterians, but uh, it was kind of quiet and I was kind of loud. <laughs> I'm what I call horribly extroverted. Uh, just trying to, if you put tape on my mouth, my head's going to explode. So I was a Presbyterian by default. Um, 
I played some football and some other stuff in high school. Did okay, uh, nothing great, but I filled out an application to attend the Air Force Academy and no one was more surprised than me that I got accepted to attend there. Now my draft number, y'all probably remember those, my draft number was in the 20s. I was going in the military, it was just a matter of where. And so I went up to the Air Force Academy and although I had done well in my little school with uh, 200 people, uh, when I got up there, I was just lost. I was underwater. There were people that actually knew how to spell calculus. And uh, I can't tell you how much even, even freshman English gave me rigor. So uh, anyway, um, at that time, you may not recall this, but church attendance was mandatory. We didn't march to church. That's about the only thing we didn't march to. But... You could walk on over, but attendance was taken, and by golly, you had some answers to provide if you weren't there. Well, someone at West Point filed a lawsuit that, you know, that it was not right to force people to go to church, and they prevailed. And so my junior year, uh, it was no longer required. And so myself and the other two people who went to church, we, we enjoyed it mostly, but because we had a huge you know, church organ, pipe organ, and, and we would try and, you know, nod our heads to the music, you know, anything to give encouragement. But um, th that was an ecumenical, that's a military setting. My dog tag said Protestant other, prot other. And so, you know, that actually covers a huge variety of churches and belief sets. It's amazing. But I would say that I was not a particularly religious person at that time. Uh, upon graduation, I went to pilot training uh, and in Enid, Oklahoma, which I call the middle of the Southwestern cultural desert. <laughs> there were three convenience stores in town, but there, there is a college there. Howard Phillips College is in Enid and Chevron had a refinery there for years and years and so there's something other than the Air Force Base. The Air Force Base was so small, the next smallest size in the uh, base exchange system was a standalone Coke machine. So you get the idea. Our, our little BX, our little commissary, it was tiny. We also had the only civilian crew chief force. They were trying out civilians to see if they were easier to manage and that sort of thing. And so uh, my crew chief frequently had a female crew chief way before the rest of the military caught up. So now there was a church there at that Air Force Base and about the same size as the BX, you know, uh, all folding chairs and that sort of thing. And, you know, to be a chaplain in the military is, is a unique trip. It's, it's not exactly standard. It's, but we have chaplains in our congregation that are like work at hospitals and that sort of thing, right, that don't have a flock per se. Well, uh, I graduated from the Air Force Academy. I went to pilot training in Enid. While I was in Enid, I did something that a lot of people don't do. I crashed an airplane in pilot training. 
I had an instructor in the back. He was slightly more surprised than I was. <laughs> you know, and he's just seeing his whole career kind of. Um, that's another story. I'll tell it to you sometime. But that's when the Holy Spirit first made contact with me. <laughs> in an unmistakable way. You know, I was going to pray. I was supposed to pray. I was supposed to do the scripture. Did the scripture ever come up? Okay, okay. Uh, we'll just leave it up there for now. I'm going to read it in a minute. Um, but during the, the uh, crash, uh, as you can imagine, adrenaline is flowing. And your perception of things has the strange thing that happens when you're in combat or car wreck or some other kind of stressful thing. Uh, but I remember I was about to explode the canopy off because I couldn't get it to come up. And we'd been told these airplanes burn rather fiercely. So we thought, my, the instructor and I both thought, any minute now, you know, it's jiffy pop time. So. <laughs> I reached it, and it has a little piece of safety wire on it so that if you could catch your pants or something on it, it won't just and blow your canopy off. It's got a little piece of safety wire, but it only takes about 10 pounds or so to overcome it. And I pull it to the end of that wire, about to break it, and my instructor was on top of the canopy trying to help me get it up. And I would have, you know, who knows what would have happened. I'm sure he would, he would have been injured at the very minimum. But what stopped me was the Holy Spirit, and uh, you can't convince me otherwise, because I was intent, and I stopped. The funny thing about the Holy Spirit is, once you experience, once you experience it up close, you want it again. It becomes a desire. You, you felt this calm, this thing. I mean, I'm in the middle of a plane wreck, and wow. So the instructor and I get out of the plane, we run about 100 yards, and we realize we left the motors on. Oh, no. So we both ran back another 100 yards, turned it off, and the instructor pilot can't turn them off, only the student in the front. Anyway, the, uh, there were about five miracles that occurred after that. The fire truck that came out, of course, because they didn't know what was gonna happen, um, about five minutes after it arrived, there was a giant backfire explosion and the fire truck caught on fire. You know, and you're starting to feel like, you know, I'm a co-star in a men's prison movie, you know. It's... Anyway, we got the fire truck out and the, the first miracle is that I told the investigating officers it was all my fault, there's no way that my instructor he would have had to been psychic like Latoya Jackson in order to know I was going to do what I did to crash that plane. And they believed me. Well, I thought there's, there's a nice radar site in Thule, Greenland that's being warmed up for me. Uh, so, but they got me up in the air and I flew again two days later. They want to find out, is it permanent, you know, or what? And I had the best night of my life. These were night landings. And so uh, about the fifth miracle was is they decided to keep me in pilot training. 
And I, I went on and graduated, and I flew C-130s. They're the uh, propeller-driven airplane, usually camouflage, but these days, who knows? A uh, hundred different countries own the C-130. It's the Goonie Bird of the millennials. And I had a good time in there. The Holy Spirit helped me out a couple more times in there. A few things went wrong, but... Um, I actually considered, I got out of the military and I was going to be an airline pilot, but Braniff Airlines, another name people younger than us don't know, they went out of business the month before I got out of the service. And they put 200 pilots fully qualified on the job market. And there were no flying jobs for three years, so. I got into computers. It was uh, one of the few things I got an A in at the Air Force Academy and um, got a job with Texas Instruments here in Austin. They moved me here. And about my last six months in Abilene, we started attending a Presbyterian church downtown. And uh, there was one of the officers that I worked with went there. And I had my first cognitive dissonance then during that. You know, I just, I, I couldn't make a friend. I couldn't find anyone to relate to. So we moved to Austin and uh, I found a church uh, down on 35th Street, Westminster Presbyterian, and uh, started attending there. And uh, there were a lot of people that were movers and shakers that attend that church. Pike Powers, I don't know if you remember him. Bill Powers, the man who, president of UT who just passed away. Uh, Frank Denius, who was the legal counsel for Southern Union Gas. And uh, movers and shakers, impressive people. Me, not so much. But after 20 years there, <laughs> I still didn't have any friends. I, I couldn't figure out what, what's the cognitive, what's the problem. So I looked into the religious background, the theology behind the Presbyterian belief set and the Methodist and some others. I was determined to figure out what was wrong. Well, um, the Presbyterians have this concept. This is what I came up with. They have this concept called once saved, always saved. Now, I'm not a theologian, and first of all, let me say, you should never talk to a theologian who doesn't have a sense of humor. <laughs> Definitely, that's a requirement. But as I investigated, it has to do primarily with the beliefs of Calvin, John Calvin. And uh, there's a whole, there's an acronym called TULIP that describes each of the proponents and John Wesley, you know, John Wesley put out his, his list and the Synod of the Dort came up with the tulip thing. And I'm sure I'm missing something up there. But anyway, the theology of John Wesley, I'm just going to read you a couple things, follows more closely a different strand of theology in the Western and Orthodox. That's the Eastern tradition, like Russian Orthodox, for example that understands that salvation is both something does, something God does, and in which we cooperate. Not as equals, of course, but we still have our part to play. 
Only God can initiate salvation, but only by our ongoing living relationship with God through faith can God's saving intention be fully realized in our lives. In other words, you are offered a chance at salvation and you accept it through faith, but you can mess it up. You can backslide, as Wesley would say. And what I think I found was my fellow men and women at the Presbyterian Church, they took that once saved, always saved, a little too far. You know, they, there were things that happened that I'm not criticizing them, don't get me wrong. Plenty of fine Presbyterians, but they would do things that made me wonder, why are they doing that? I mean, that's not Jesus' way, as I understand it. And in my survey, I, you know, I came to the conclusion that Wesleyan Arminianism, I don't know if I said that right, but it's close. Arminius was this Dutch guy named Jacob, Jacob, and Wesley liked a lot of his ideas, and one of it was, you can mess up. You can mess with your salvation. Now, the thing is, is that Wesley went a little further than some and said, indeed, it is so far from being an uncommon thing for a believer to fall and be restored that is rather uncommon to find any believers who are not conscious of having been backsliders from God to a higher or lower degree, perhaps a couple of times. Here's a guy I could relate to. You try to be a good Christian, temptation interferes, you get the wrong idea. Is there a way back? Yes. Now the Presbyterians were in denial about this because once saved, always saved. I asked the question, I'm on my deathbed and I renounce everything minutes before I die. How is that predestined? I mean, how is that once saved, always saved? I never got a good answer on that. So after 40 years as a Presbyterian, I joined Bethany. And uh, frankly, you know, it's not that far from my house, but. <laughs> but since I got here, I made friends. And I like the idea that I got to keep working on my salvation. I have a part to play in it. If I screw up, make a mistake, I still have a way back. And, and it leads to a stronger faith because you fall down and you feel regret in that situation. And God, Jesus still wants you back. And, you, and you, now you've learned something. And... You won't make that same mistake again unintentionally. I, I actually like that. Another thing that I learned here, I'll go ahead and read this from 1 Timothy. Of course, there's a great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into this world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. To me, that is gratitude and acceptance. That's probably the key thing that I've learned since coming here. I see that all the time. People model it to me. They don't say it to me necessarily, but I watch it occur. Now, uh, Jesus, Son of God, 
it must have been incredibly difficult for him not to be God. I mean, just the money changers in the temple, you know, just, and they're out the door, blown out by a huge wind, who knows. So, but we hear about this from Paul in Philippians second chapter, verse six through eight, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's acceptance, isn't it? You accept your situation and you're gonna do your part as God shows you. The other thing I've seen is gratitude. Even when gratitude is not particularly obvious, there's this 13th century mystic philosopher named Meister Eckhart. And he said, if the only prayer you ever say in your life is thank you, it will be enough. Gratitude is key. That's what I've learned since coming to Bethany. I've been here about five years and I've made more progress at Bethany in five years than I made anywhere else the rest of my life. And I'm very happy to be here. The other day in Sunday school, someone said they were a skeptic. They're not sure everything in the Bible is true. And I interjected, well, there is this thing called divinely inspired, you know, that might have helped provide some of what's written down. But I'm here to tell you that I'm not skeptical. I'm a full-blooded, wholehearted, screaming believer in Jesus Christ. And the most remarkable thing about me is I used to talk constantly. <laughs> now do some listening. You can't possibly learn anything when you're talking. That, that finally got through to me. Okay, I'd like to close us with a prayer. If you'll bow with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this gathering of believers. It's so important that we are able to share each other's experience so that we can gain insight into our own problems and resolutions. In Jesus' name, amen.